to seek and devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may destroy. And so because God loves you, he puts people in your path. So think about you being a person who could be in the path of someone and say, hey, you know what? You're on the wrong trail. You need to turn around. You need to walk back the other way. And Saul is bent on sinning. There are just some people that are bent on it. They're just going to do it, but that doesn't mean it's okay for us not to say anything. Sin unchecked will wreak havoc and ultimately destroy a person's life. We often believe the lie that a momentary pleasure will not have any serious consequences. But that is a device of Satan. Another way that he deceives us is by convincing us that the sins of our fellow believers are none of our business. As Pastor Mark studies the story of David and his conflict with Saul, we see the ultimate toll that sin took on Saul's life. A small amount of jealousy grew into a full-blown desire to murder. In his divine wisdom, God placed Jonathan into the story to check the sin of his father and prevent David's untimely death. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 19 with today's edition of Come Alive. 1 Samuel 19 verse 1 says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you, therefore... Please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and then what I observe I will tell you. If you remember from last week as we were talking, the life which began, Saul's life, kind of began with a lot of promise. It is seen in last week's study and in this week's study picking up momentum in the area of foolish acts. So Saul moves from trying to use the Philistines to kill David, to actually ordering him killed. And so there's this hit put out on David's uh, life. And Saul becomes impatient with God's delays and disobeyed God's commands a while back. And so the darkness begins to gather. Saul finds himself encompassed by passion and madness and jealousy. And so what we see here kind of just to set the tone is a lot of times we cannot make rash decisions based off of emotional things. It's better to think it through. Go to somebody that you trust that will use the word of God to guide you and direct you and give you a verse because even some well-meaning Christians, sometimes we just blurt stuff out and it may not be what you need to hear. It may not be of, of the Lord. So sometimes we get to you know, advise people, but we should always go to the, to the word of the Lord. So we get to eavesdrop on this secret staff meeting that Saul's having here with some of his military guys. So Saul lays out the design of death for David. And in verse 1 it says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So they have a relationship. Jealous of all that David has done and threatened by David, Saul is determined to kill him. He wants him dead. And you and I can absolutely relate because we too have an enemy. 
You and I have an enemy that is trying to kill us, who targets us and, and, and has us believe sometimes that, well, he doesn't want us to really influence others. And sometimes we buy into that. He doesn't want us to influence others for the kingdom. And so he wants us to basically just leave the kingdom stuff alone and ignore it. But, you know, the enemy, Satan, he has a kingdom of death and so of darkness and of damnation. And so for God's kingdom of light, love, and salvation, he tries to dissuade us from talking to people or sharing our faith or maybe even inviting them to Harvest America or some other outreach or to church. And that's what Satan does. And so if you've had a thought that, hey, I want to invite a friend to church, I want to bring a friend to church, and you kind of backed away from it, you chickened out, then you know that would mean that Satan probably had a greater influence over you than the Lord had over you. So be careful. Don't allow him to rule your life. And then sometimes, you know, we just get a little embarrassed because we don't want people to think we're holy rollers or we're religious. And we are. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It should be something we, we love and we love to talk about. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a guy and a girl that start dating. You can't get them to shut up about their boyfriend or their girlfriend. You're just like, man, if I have to hear about her one more time or him one more time and how great he is, and you give it a little time, and then you can't quit hearing about how horrible they are. Again, Saul is jealous of all that David has done. And so I wonder, is it harder for you to sin as a Christian, as you walk your walk? My question would be, is it harder for us, for you to sin, the more you walk and the longer you've been with the Lord? And I pray that it is. I hope that the Spirit, as He works in your life, continues to convict and convince and frustrate you, cause some shame, some remorse the next time you even consider to do something against God. And because as Christians, as we grow, it should be one of those things where we even think about sinning, where we should start feeling really convicted and being like, man, that's not the right thought. I know early on in my walk with the Lord, it was pretty easy just to think of a, a, a thought and go for it and be like, oh man, that was wrong afterwards and, and repent. But now it's like when I think of a thought, that's not right, that's not of the Lord, it's like, man, what am I doing? And so just flip the switch, turn it off. Try not to focus on it. And these are all things we must consider and contemplate the next time we start to sin. These things, the, the next time I, I start to sin, I have to think about how much shame I'm going to bring to the name of, of the Lord. Am I glorifying him and exalting him, or am I dragging his name through the dirt? The next time I think about sinning, how many a people that could affect how many people would be hurt and, and, and just really bummed out that I blew it. And we have to understand that our sin has a direct or an indirect consequence as well. It causes other people around us to hurt. It can cause shame for them. They might think, wow, man, you know what? That's a bummer. But I think sometimes the Lord uses that to, to bring us to a place where we have to say, hey, you know what? That's not the right thought. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. So I have to think about the weight of the, frust the frustration of the flesh as well and the guilt that that spirit leads me away from that decision to sin. That's the Holy Spirit sometimes when we start to think the wrong thoughts and we start to feel guilty and, and we start to be convicted and we're convinced and saying, hey, you know what? That's not the right thing to do. That's not where we're to go with that. And so once the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence, we begin to see a cleansing process or a cleaning process take place. Things start to get cleaned out. And God allows this so he can protect you, so he can move in and guide you and direct you in the right way. So even if you choose to sin, 
God allows certain people along your path so that it's very difficult for you to stay in the sin. You may choose to go after this thing called sin, and you may pursue it, but sometimes God puts people in your path. And the reason he does that is because he loves you. And so you may be that person in the path of somebody. So don't ever chicken out. Don't ever think it's none of your business. Because if they're a Christian, let me say this. It is your business. It is your business. Let me put it to you this way. If it was your child and they were about to walk into a movie theater with a gun, don't you think those parents wanted somebody in the path of, that, of their kid to say, hey, man, wait a minute. Stop. This is not the right thought. This is not what you're supposed to do. And don't you think those people who lost someone at that movie theater would have given anything for someone to say, hey, could you please stop? Could you reconsider? And so by choice, this young man went ahead and did what the devil wanted him to do. I'm sure Satan probably convinced him and told him it's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. You're going you're to be famous. And now this guy's left on his own. And Satan has turned his back on him because he's the father of lies. He wants to seek and devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may destroy. And so because God loves you, he puts people in your path. So think about you being a person who could be in the path of someone and say, hey, you know what? You're on the wrong trail. You need to turn around. You need to walk back the other way. And Saul is bent on sinning. There are just some people that are bent on it. They're just going to do it, but that doesn't mean it's okay for us not to say anything. So he doesn't have a pure conscience. It has been seared. It has, his heart, we could say, has been hardened, and yet we see the measure of God goes through to arrest or stop him, to bring him back into a right relationship with him. Look at verse 2. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. Jonathan, being the heir to the throne, could have said nothing. He could have even been like, hey, David, it's none of my business. He could have even been the guy to kill David and secure his place. But yet he doesn't. He's a, a what we talked about last week, a true friend. He will say what he has to say. And it's not because he's like, oh, man, it's wrong. It's because he cares for David. If you care enough for someone, you're going to say something. You're going to do something. And, and it's a love test. I think God puts us through these love tests all the time to find out how much and how much we care and how much we love the people that are around us. Remember to love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't you want somebody to warn you if somebody had a, well, a laser pointed at your heart right now? If, if somebody, Mike, if he had a laser on his chest, I'd be like, man, it's not me and I'm not playing a game, but there's a laser on your chest, Mike. Run, duck, throw Christina in the way. No, I wouldn't do that. But, I mean, you got to think about it. If I care about somebody, I would warn you of the danger that's ahead. And so look at verse 3. It says, And I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Jonathan is actually going to say, Hey, Dad, this, this is the wrong thought. He's going to take a stand for what David has done. And it's important that we learn to do that. So we're seeing sin in its incubation stage. As we learned on Wednesday, as Mike rightfully taught and, and did an awesome job, right now it hasn't been fully formed. We could say it, it, it's still in the stage of desire. 
James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, is what James says. So the implications are quite clear. Here we see Saul just thinking about sin, thinking about killing David. And this is the easiest stage to really turn away from, is when we start to think about it, it's really easy to say, you know what, that's not the right thought. Or go to someone and say, here, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? What do you think? And hopefully, you, being the Christian, would say, that's wrong. That's wrong. Hopefully, you're not the Christian that's like, well, it's none of my business. I, I don't want to be mean. I'm, I, I'm more worried about what you think about me than what's right. And so the implications are quite clear. Here we see Saul just thinking about sin. And if you're determined to sin, well, God will do what he can to prevent it. But here's the point. However insignificant you think that thought to be, beware of the power that that thing, that thought can incubate and grow. It can incubate and grow. Everything begins with a thought. Divorce isn't an accident. Murder isn't an accident. A thought starts the process. A thought starts the process. Look at verse 4. It says, Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. So again, here, here's Jonathan saying, hey, don't, don't sin. Don't sin. I think we sometimes get too afraid to tell somebody that that thought, that thing could be a sin. We're, well, you know, you might want to, we'll call Pastor Mark. Um, yeah, he might tell you right because, uh, you know, I don't know. It just, hey, man, if it's the wrong thought, you're, you're smart enough. You know, uh, just, just call it what it is. See, we see how God protects David against a thought. God's protecting David right now just against a thought through a prince who pled his case in advance and an and advocate for David, so to speak. And so Jonathan talked to his father about David's situation. Jonathan, Jonathan comes to reason with Saul. So we see here, if you're taking notes, you can write down a son of reason. A son of reason. Webster defines reason as an underlying factor, a cause that provides reasonable sense. Or good sense. It's a cause that just provides good sense. In Isaiah 118, God reasons with us concerning our sin, is what we're told. We have a reasoning God. We have a reasoning God. In Genesis 4.4, God reasoned with Cain. And you can read that on your own. And notice what sin does in the life of Cain. This points to a far greater prince than Jonathan. It points to the Prince of Peace, our Savior Jesus, who does the same for us. He pleads our case to his father. He says, hey, you know, these guys have blown it, but I'm pleading their case. Jonathan pled for David on the basis of his works, that he put the beating on Goliath. He says, hey, Dad, remember, remember what David did for us, what David did for the whole nation? He wasn't afraid. He went out and he beat down Goliath, the giant. Jesus pleads our case not based on our works, Some of us would be in trouble if that were the case because we tend to do very little for him, but rather on the basis of his work on the cross for us, on his works. 
And so you may be that person in life of another, and, and it's your good intention to stand and help them stop sinning, but you have to point them to someone greater than you. And we have to realize this. You can't say, hey, look, here's what I've done. You can say, here's what I've done. I, I take myself to the cross of Jesus Christ. But you don't point to yourself. You've got to point to God. Only God can help them stop sinning. Just the other night, I had to go pick somebody up and had to have that same conversation. Well, how can I change, Mark? How am I supposed to change? I said, well, you can't do it on your own. You've got to come to God. You've got to come to realize that only God can change you. But if you're not willing to allow him to change you, then you won't change. Your situation will never change. And a lot of people take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this, and they try to mix it up, and they make some kind of weird recipe that just doesn't work. It's either all or none. You're either all in or you're all out. You can't walk the fine line. The Bible tells us you're either hot or cold. You can't be both. You can't be lukewarm or is what the Bible says. It's like, you know what, I'm just going to vomit you out of my mouth. And that's a very gross description, but it's very gross probably to God when we try to be a Christian yet live like the world. We try to look like the world and we want to have this underlying Christian tone to us. We want to fit in both places, but in reality you really can't. You're either a cat or a dog. A cat can't pretend to be a dog no matter how much it wants to be, nor a dog to be a cat. Now, there's some dogs that are small like a cat, but nonetheless, they're still geared. They have the brain, the makeup, the DNA of a dog. And so sometimes, you know, it's not going to work out if you saw a dog crawling around meowing like a cat or vice versa. It doesn't make sense. And so it says, Oswald Chambers says, if you are necessary to anyone, you are out of God's will. I'll say that again. If you are necessary to anyone, you are out of God's will. In a relationship with God, it should not be dependent on anyone but God. And so if you're necessary to anyone, you're out of God's will. Look at verse 8. It says, And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. And again, we see the difference between, we see a comparison and a contrast. We see Saul and David. Compare the two. What does Saul have? A weapon of war, a murder weapon. What does David have? He has something of worship in his hand. And so David worships, Saul desires to kill. And when David returns victorious from war, again and again, the evil spirit from God falls upon Saul. Think about that. David comes back from war again, and he's a victor. And again, Saul is, well, he's jealous. That evil spirit falls upon Saul again. We can't forget Saul is a man under God's judgment. Don't ever forget that. Saul is a man under the judgment of God. David shows up to play some worship music for the Lord, and Saul and this guy get a, uh, and Saul gets a little crazy, and he tries to kill David. He tries to pin him to the wall. And again, Saul goes back on his word. Saul goes back on his word. So when somebody's constantly going back on their word, if they can't let their yes be yes and their no, no, think about this. It says Satan is the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. So that person may be more concerned with himself or less concerned with you. And again, Saul goes back on his word. Remember at first he was going to give David a daughter to marry, and which he did, he gave Micah. But if you, if you, if you think about this, If you think about what happened, he had to buy her. He had to purchase her. So Saul goes back on his word again. 
He says he's not going to harm David. He goes and he tries to harm him. So David is like, a, is like, man, you know, here I am. I'm just playing some worship music, and this guy throws a spear at me. What a rough crowd. So he leaves, and he leaves that night. Look at verse 11. So it says, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and he fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed. That's very interesting. She's still into idol worship. Laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair on it for its head, and covered it with clothes. And so when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. Now, can you imagine being called to work? calling in to work tomorrow saying, I'm sick, and your boss says, hey, dude, we're just going to send some guys, and they're going to bring you and your bed in. I mean, that's basically what it's saying. Look at verse 16. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, and he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, think about this. Before we had a son of reason, now we got a daughter of deceit. So the the two people that love David, a son of reason and a daughter of deceit. We see another way that the Spirit's trying to speak to Saul. First, that son of reason, Jonathan, and now the daughter of deceit. His own daughter lies to him. His own daughter lies to him. Now, this doesn't give us liberty and, and say it's okay to lie as long as we're protecting someone. A lie is a lie. A sin is a sin. His own daughter lies to him, and I think God is hoping that Saul sees his sin in his own daughter. That's what I think the picture is here. It's a powerful thing to see your own sin in one of your own children. And think about that. When you watch your kids and they're blowing it, and you're like, oh, dude, that's me. My son one time told me, I came in the house, and I don't know who told him this, and we were just sitting around, and nothing bad was going on. And he goes, Dad, I'm just like you. And that scared me when he said that. I was like, oh, Lord. Please let me walk the straight and narrow in front of my children. Because I do. I see when my son gets mad, I see my temper. I never taught him how to throw a temper tantrum, but I see my temper from my BC days. I was told one time at church he flipped over a table. And when they told me that, I was like, yeah, I pretty much have done that before on more than one occasion. Not because I was trying to clean underneath it, but because I'd lost my temper. And so he had never seen me flip a table. But it's there. And it's amazing what that does when you see your sin in one of your own children. It's very, very convicting. And I pray that the Lord allow you to see the sin, your sin in your children. But here's the deal, man. It's, it's a scary thing because if you see it, you need to put a stop to it. Thank you for tuning in again today to Come Alive. Pastor Mark will have much more to teach us from this study of 1 Samuel when you join us next time. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Mark, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. Just search for Come Alive in your app store or on iTunes. Before our time is through with you today, though, Tracy would like to tell you how you can be a part of the ministry of Come Alive. Come Alive and radio programs like it are powerful tools that God is using to advance His gospel message here on earth. And we know that God is blessing many through the ministry of this broadcast. We want to make sure we keep God at the center of what we're doing, and that's where you come in. 
Would you keep Come Alive, Pastor Mark, and those who have heard this program today in your prayers? Your intercession on our behalf is greatly appreciated. Thanks, Tracy. Another way you can be involved is through financial support. Here at Come Alive, we rely on the kindness of donations to be able to provide you with quality produced programs. We'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating and want you to know that any amount is useful and greatly appreciated. Find out more at comealiveradio.com or you can text a donation to Calvary Katy at 77977. That's 77977. Thank you for bringing this matter before the Lord and thank you for being a part of our listening audience today on Come Alive.